In this episode of the Smart City Podcast, I interviewed the CEO of Resilient Grid, Mike Leggett. Mike is passionate about focusing on the human when it comes to the resilience of critical infrastructure such as power, water, gas and communications. I really enjoyed this discussion, particularly around the smart citizen and how decisions of individuals together can impact a smart city. We talked about some of the projects Resilient Grid is working on, as well as why it's so important to give humans a purpose in an ever-increasing automated world. Mike will be presenting at the IEEE Green Tech Smart City Conference in Austin, Texas, this Friday, 6th of April. So you can check this out at IEEEgreentech.org for more information. As always, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. It's the Smart City Podcast, whoa, with smart city experts, here we go. Connecting smart technology, both big and small. Smart cities are making life better for all. Big data, emerging trends, self-driving cars and more. The Smart City Podcast is what you're looking for. Hi, Mike. How are you going? Hi, uh, good morning. Great, thanks. How are you today? Oh, very well, very well. Um, let's just jump straight into it. And can you tell us a bit about your background and what you're passionate about? Sure, absolutely. Um, I would say that my biggest passion is uh, finding the humanity in an increasingly high-tech world and uh, looking at ways that we can make our lives better, uh, not just with technology, but bringing the technology into helping uh, the human side of the equation. Um, As far as my background, um, I've been a programmer for more decades than I'd like to admit now. I'm a clinical psychologist and a power systems engineer. Um, And really, I'd say the most important thing about my background was um, had to do with one day uh, when I took some time many years ago to do some laundry. And as I was doing that laundry, the lights went out. And I thought, oh, no, I just you know, tripped a circuit breaker because every washing machine and uh, dryer was running. But it was actually August of 2003 in uh, New York and uh, what we now call the Northeast Blackout of 2003. Uh, as if I'm not enough of a nerd, I'm also a ham radio guy. And when that uh, blackout occurred, I happened to live close by the Emergency Operations Center And so volunteered that night as uh, what's called net control, basically making sure that messages could go from uh, entity to entity because uh, the cell phones and landlines and Internet were all down within, say, the first 20 or 30 minutes. And so watching all of that traffic flow, uh, things that I wouldn't have seen before, came to really recognize how important critical infrastructure is for society, how much it touches all of our lives. And what really kind of shaped the course of my career wasn't really the blackout itself, but reading a report that came out shortly after that tried to ask the question, why did this blackout occur and why did it take so long to restore the system? New York City was, say, 12 hours or so uh, uh, dark, but there were other parts uh, that were out for days of the U.S. or uh, Canada. And... Ultimately, the answer to both of those was it wasn't a technological problem. They were actually human factors. Human beings lost situational awareness, which meant they stopped being able to see the big picture, which is a very common thing under stress. And they also really struggled to collaborate together to restore infrastructure. And so that's really kind of my background and what got me so passionate about the work that I do. 
Yeah, wow. So it sounds like it's what you're doing is very related to smart cities. So what kind of sparked your interest in that smart city space? To me, smart cities are a really exciting um, path into the future because, you know, we're at a point now where we can digitize what we kind of intuitively knew all along. You know, right now in smart cities or less smart cities, we have electric utilities, water, gas utilities. We have traffic lights. We have, you know, ambulances, fire trucks, and so forth. But to me, what's really exciting about smart cities is the idea that all of this can come together. Technology becomes kind of the glue that pulls that all together. And I think that we have, for the first time in our history, the potential to run a smart city through technology for these different organizations, these different human beings to work together more remotely and to be able to see wider and wider circles all at the same time. I think that's an incredible opportunity uh, that we've never had before in society. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about Resilient Grid um, specifically. Can you explain a little bit about what um, what that what your company does, I suppose. Sure. So the idea is that when you look at, you may hear a lot of terms like reliable, robust, resilient, safe, talking about infrastructures. And the thing about resiliency is that the key source of resiliency is not technology, it's actually human. So the idea is that in order to have a resilient infrastructure, you need human beings set up for success. And that's really the work that we do. Primarily, we build software for integrated situational awareness and collaboration. We help human beings that we know are going to be dealing with more and more data and usually under high stress, high stakes kind of situations to be able to do that more effectively. But then we also have to look at all of the other human aspects as well. You can have the best piece of software in a really poor organizational culture where ideas are not being shared, where people are being blamed and fired for human error and all of these other kind of things, and the software doesn't matter. What we do is really support organizations to look holistically, not just within one control room or on one screen, but across the organization so that they're able to manage big data, fast data, real-time situations where society is counting on those infrastructures to work uh, and, uh, you know, those really important infrastructures are able to do their work. So what projects or things are you currently working on at the moment? So our main work is on software for the control room. Uh, we're looking at integrating more and more kinds of data and helping to pull all of those different pieces together to give the operator information. We're watching now operators, especially in a big data world, they're drowning in data and thirsty for information. And so we're doing a lot of work to help them uh, with that. We're also doing a lot more work on this kind of collaborative idea that if you live in a smart city, you know, it's no longer just that the lights are on every time that you flip the switch or anything like that but you're actually a part of a system. And we now have the digital capability of having everybody be a digital citizen in that smart, uh, in that smart world, in that smart city. And so we're also looking at some technologies as well to kind of enhance that interaction uh, so that people feel more a part of the community that they're already really a part of. Yeah, cool. Can you expand a little bit on um, the term smart citizen? 
on a smart citizen. Sure. So I've always felt that when we talk about smart grid, we often make the mistake of saying that the smart grid is a bunch of technology and then stop there. To me, that's a, you know, a critical step. You can't get to a smart city without it. But to me, that's only the first step. There's a lot more smarts in a city than just relays, IoT sensors, and you know traffic cameras and so forth. There's also smart people, smart people who are making decisions, you know, every moment of every day. So as an end-use consumer, you know, a, a resident, if I buy an electric vehicle, you know, I have the potential for my vehicle and my decision to significantly impact the smart city all around me. And I can do that in a way that hurts the city, or I can do it in a way that helps the city. One of the things that I'm seeing really is this kind of continual movement where the efficiency of the overall city, uh, the potential is getting higher and higher than it's ever been before. But on the other hand, it's also getting you know tighter and tighter. In other words, a little bit of inefficiency actually impacts you much more than it used to because our you know, our peaks are so much higher. So to me, a smart city needs smart people, both in the control room, you know, who are making decisions and looking at wide swaths of data to understand what's happening in the city or collaborating between different elements of the city to ensure success. But also you need a significant, you know, kind of participation or the capability to be involved for all of the people who are within that smart city starting to make decisions that, you know, one little decision doesn't really make that big a difference. I can turn on or off my LED light in my office. It doesn't really matter. But if you scale that up to, you know, 100,000 people, all of a sudden that makes a huge difference. Or, you know, if I scale up when I plug in my car, when I program my electric vehicle to start charging, or if I put solar panels on my roof, any of those kind of decisions scale up and have significant impact very quickly. So it's kind of this idea that a lot of the smarts is seeing ourselves as a piece of a really important whole and what we do really matters. And once we accept that and we put our smarts into making better decisions, that's how I think we build a sustainable smart city. Yeah, cool. No, it's a really interesting idea. I've heard um, the term smart citizen um, a few times now in the few interviews I've done. So it's, um, it's great to expand on that term. Um, and it's, it's a really valuable term or really valuable role that people or citizens have to play in the smart city. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the specific projects that Resilient Grid has done? Um, do you work uh, primarily with government agencies? Sure. So our work actually is across um, the critical infrastructure space from the regulatory level down to, you know, for example, different kinds of utilities, uh, emergency responders, uh, system planners, and so forth. So we cast a, a fairly large net in terms of the kinds of organizations that we work to support. Yeah, cool. Do you think that America is doing pretty well when it comes to smart cities? That's a really good question. And I think that there are many pockets of strong success happening uh, in terms of smart cities. So, for example, in Seattle, uh, one of the projects that's being worked on uh, between Seattle City and Light and EPRI um, have to do with uh, this idea that we can start to share outage information. So, you know, if you're a resident uh, living in that area, 
you know, to be able to know what's going on around you is very helpful, just like, for example, most utilities are able to do so. But now for neighboring utilities to be able to watch weather patterns go through that area and see how it affects them to better predict, you know, when that weather continues to move into the next service territory, how that might affect them. Well, all of this kind of planning and collaboration is you know, very important. Um, I think that there are some really significant great pockets of growth in that smart cities realm happening in the U.S. And I think it's also uh, what's really interesting about it is it's varied. You know, in some places you'll see a lot of, uh, for example, uh, you know, camera and, uh, you know, IoT data. In other places, it's really kind of the fusion center idea and bringing, you know, lots of collaboration between different infrastructures that don't necessarily talk to each other. You know, I always like to give this great this example of, you know, if you imagine a situation where a truck hits a utility pole, you know, it might seem like that's just an electrical problem. But very quickly, what you'll start to see is that, you know, it's not just electric. The cable wires, the telephone wires are running over that. You know, there's a possibility that the right of way is shared with natural gas pipelines. Other people are getting there. You need fire. You need ambulance. You need police. Uh, you know, depending on the situation, you might need more law enforcement. Uh, you know, there are all of these different people who come together, you know, for every kind of situation. And I think that, you know, whether that gets done in terms of, you know, high-speed data sharing and kind of one smart city's approach or people sitting around a table, uh, you know, in a fusion center and another, you know, it's that collaboration and kind of efficiency boost uh, that is the smarts. Yeah, definitely. So do you have any ideas of where good places or good uh, cities are to pilot smart tech? Sure. Well, I'm certainly a huge fan of Austin, Texas, which is, uh, you know, where I live and where we're headquartered. Um, really, I think any city, uh, whether large or small, rural or urban, um, is a great place to do smart cities research. And I think it's actually more important that we do all of those things at the same time. Because, of course, uh, you know, a smart cities approach that really helps New York City may not do very much at all in a you know, rural community. But a lot of what happens in a rural community, especially in terms of, you know, for example, predictive analytics and so forth, can become incredibly valuable there. So I don't think it's a one size fits all. But I think ultimately what these uh, you know, places where smart cities deployments are going to be successful are places where people want to feel a part, uh, want to be a part of something bigger, um, and kind of the ability to embrace not just new technologies, but also new kinds of habits of collaboration. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of collaboration, how do you think that we can better integrate across the different disciplines, governments, and industries? I think the best answer I could give is we need better habits. It turns out that a lot of the things that we do, especially if we're, you know, reading manuals or, or sitting in training programs, tends to be a different kind of knowledge than habit. I think that the best way to, uh, to do that is to have done kind of cross you know, cross-organizational collaborative training. So people are ready to work together at a moment's notice. And if you, you know, if the first time that you're talking to someone in a different part, either part of the same organization or a different organization altogether is an emergency situation, you know, really incredible human beings will do the best they can under any circumstance. But in many ways, 
you know, there was a much better opportunity to have trained on that and practiced and been ready for that, you know, long before. So I think that's one of the habits. And the other one to me is this concept of continuous improvement. The idea that, um, you know, every kind of cross-entity collaboration that you have, or even any time that you exp- you find yourself in a situation, whether that's, for example, a near miss, something that could have been bad but wasn't, or after a training or a collaboration or any kind of pr- preparation, you know, to take some input on how the overall system uh, could continue to grow and then funnel that back in onto a kind of continuous process. I think that's really kind of the, the best source of integration. Yeah, cool. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I think if we're coming together uh, only in emergency situations, then yeah, it will, will things, amazing things will happen during that time, but definitely preparation um, can make things run much more efficiently for sure. Absolutely. I've been actually, um, I've been a part of uh, several kind of emergency preparedness uh, trainings and simulations. And the thing that really struck me was once uh, had an operator from one company say to another, you know, I hope we're never in an emergency situation, but if we ever do find ourselves in one, I will feel so much better knowing that you're on the other side of the telephone line. You know, just those human connections can make all of the difference. Yeah, definitely. Do you think that America is already or can become leaders in the smart city space? I think that America can be. um, But I also think that leadership in smart city space is not something that you get to just attain and then hold on to. It's a kind of fluid, dynamic thing that will continue sort of, it, it requires a philosophy of continuous growth. I absolutely think that America has a lot of the capabilities, um, both in the high tech world, as well as, um, you know, in uh, government, academia, uh, psychology, you know, organizational behavior. You know, we certainly have a ton of expertise that could be um, kind of all come together to support that kind of leadership. Um, So, yes, I think that that could that could definitely happen. And I also believe that there are many other countries that could very much do the same. Ultimately, it really depends on, uh, you know, whether, you know, people both, you know, leaders in kind of a, you know, company uh, perspective, as well as leaders, you know, all of us who are decision makers, uh, you know, places where um, people recognize that they're a part of something much bigger than themselves or much bigger than their company and work and kind of pledge to collaborate build habits of collaboration um, and grow together. Uh, those are the places that can become leaders in smart cities. Cool. You mentioned other countries. So do you take a global approach when it comes to um, your company? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, cool. What other countries are you working with or learning from or um, collaborating with? Sure. So while I can't talk about individual customers, um, what I can say is that we're focused on working with several different countries, uh, both to understand, uh, you know, different cultures and how different cultures affect different organizational behavior and therefore different kinds of emergency preparedness and collaboration. Uh, and we're also uh, doing some benchmarking on looking at organizational cultures around the world to try to understand where the key components of resiliency. It's usually uh, the case that there is not one particular country or one particular company that does it all right. 
And so our approach is to work and learn from, you know, as many organizations and cultures as we can. Yeah, I, I thought um, that would be the case, basically, that, you, yeah, definitely not a one-size-fits-all, and particularly when you're talking about different organizational cultures and different, um, you know, cultures in general, that it would be really interesting exercise to um, not necessarily compare but learn from different um, countries across the world. So, yeah, no, that's really cool. And I think that the best culture hasn't been created yet. I mean, ultimately, you know, there's the sense that as we all – seek to improve and try things out, um, you know, in kind of an entrepreneurial way and take everything that we learn to use it to continue to improve, you know, whether you're talking about culture at the country level or at the company level to continue to elevate that, uh, you know, cultural experience is a significant part of that growth. Yeah, no, I really like that. So Mike, what are the emerging trends that people aren't talking about at the moment? I think to me, there are, two trends that people aren't really talking about as much as um, I would suggest would be more optimal. One of them has to do with this question of reliability versus robustness. What that means is that, you know, there is this concept of a robust system is one that is harder and harder to knock down. And to me, a lot of the conversations we're having around, you know, adding more technology to keep the lights on or any of these kind of things are increasing robustness. Unfortunately, one of the things that we also know is that a resilient system, in other words, one that is able to bounce back after it's been knocked down, um, and a robust system, which is harder to knock down, those two things aren't completely independent. The more robust you build things, the more they tend to be less resilient. So I think we need to decide as a society where do we want to put our limited time and our limited money? Do we want to add more and more and more robustness and increase the complexity of a system to the point that if it does ever fail, you know, or, you know, it's very hard to restore or just even being at a level that a human being would really struggle to understand it versus a system that is resilient, which is designed to really be able to bounce back from everything, especially those things that we cannot predict in advance. I think that's really one of the places where human beings really shine is that we can come up with solutions for experiences and situations we've never been exposed to before. And I think that's a key differentiator. I think that's one thing uh, as far as emerging trends that we're not talking about. And the other emerging trend that I think we're not talking about is over-automation. One of the things that I've watched happen in the last, you know, say two decades, especially recently in the last few years, is this idea that all we need to do is take this new technology that takes away, you know, a task from this risky human being. And yes, you know, human beings make mistakes every hour that we're awake. So, you know, it makes sense. But part of the problem is that... As we add automation to the system, we begin to create something called out-of-the-loop syndrome. You may recall a while ago, a Tesla driver was killed while uh, you know, because his car, the sensors failed, and the car crashed into the back of a truck. And at the time this person lost their life, they were watching Harry Potter on the screen. The reason that happened, as I understand it, this was not a person who even loved the concept of automation at first, but got used to it. Now, what happens whenever there is automation, if we stop mattering, we're going to find something else to do with our time. It is really, really hard to sustain attention for really long periods of time when we know that what we're doing doesn't matter. 
And so if we can build 100% reliable automation, in other words, a system that can handle every situation anticipated or unanticipated that ever comes our way, in that case, okay, let's talk about automation, let's build that. But what I see happening is actually a, a kind of march towards increased risk because what we've done is we're continually adding more and more and more levels of automation. And that automation really is not pulling the human being into the loop. And so ultimately, when you do have that black swan event, you know, if you're 99.999% reliable, you know, when that, you know, 0.001% event occurs, you don't have situational awareness. You don't have mental models, that kind of internal representation of how the system works. You haven't, you know, kind of tinkered with things and tried things and learned from things and watched things happen quite as much because up until that moment, you were completely irrelevant. And now we're asking you to maintain some really critical infrastructure where you know lives are on the line. The stress those people are under is enormous. And one of the things that we know is that when you're under a lot of stress, the chances of making the wrong choice continue to rise. Just like if someone were to offer you a cash bonus to think through something, they've actually just significantly increased the chances of your failing at it. You know, there are all of these kind of paradoxical things that are happening in our society because we're not really recognizing that, you know, just like electrons have a certain set of behaviors that physics teaches us about, so too do human beings have a set of behaviors that psychology, neuroscience, sociology, anthropology, etc., teach us about. And if we don't incorporate those engineering constraints into our system design, we have ultimately built a system which looks great on paper, but fails in the emergency because we failed to recognize that those critical components on the system were actually human and we didn't design, you know, for their success on the system. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, Thanks for sharing that. That's um, really insightful. I, I really enjoyed that. Well, thank you for uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, talk through this with me. No worries. I just have one last question, which is how can people connect with you? Well, thank you so much. I'd be happy to connect with people, of course, traditionally on LinkedIn. Um, uh, so I'm Michael Leggett, L-E-G like leg, A-T-T like the phone company, or um, see us at uh, resilientgrid.com. And uh, please feel free to uh, sign up for a newsletter or reach out to us if you have ideas or want to keep the conversation going. Would certainly love to do that. Awesome. Thanks so much, Mike. It's been um, a really great conversation. And um, I know you'll um, be talking, well, tomorrow, my time, maybe tomorrow, your time um, at the Green Tech Conference. So that should be really really exciting. Zoe, thank you for all of the work that you're doing on this podcast and really um, bringing all of these people together to talk about smart cities. I think those conversations are so critical because without them, we would never be able to build those smart cities and make them a reality. So thank you for everything that you do. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Mike. Um, I hope to talk to you soon. I look forward to it. It's the Smart City Podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart City Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes can be found at thesmartcitypodcast.com. If you have any questions or comments for me or any of my guests, connect with me via email, zoe at thesmartcitypodcast.com or via the socials. I'm on Twitter and Facebook at smartcitypod. As always, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. Smart City Podcast is what you're looking for.